Welcome everyone, Lee Henson Hasty here. I'm with my friend, John Burgess, the James Henry Snowden Professor of Systematic Theology at Pittsburgh Seminary. I'm uh, the uh, Senior Director of Theological Education Funds Development um, at the Presbyterian Foundation with the Theological Education Fund. That's a ministry of the Committee on Theological Education. Um, and we're around uh, the committee and what I do because we believe in supporting future ministers that are shaped at Presbyterian theological schools like Pittsburgh Seminary, where John is uh, a tenured professor um, involved in formation. He's a mentor. Um, he's an author. And we have him here today, especially because he has had three extended stays um, in Russia, uh, two with the Fulbright program and once with the Henry Luce uh, Foundation um, and stays in touch. He's taken students, right, John, also right. to Russia. Yes. And um, thank you for making time today and, and there from your offices at Pittsburgh Seminary. Thank you, Lee. It's really great to see you again and to engage in this conversation. Oh, wow. Um, John, is um, we're here to talk about the religious dimensions uh, to the crisis in the Ukraine. Um, and um, this is all over the news with um, the war that is happening, the attacks that are happening, the refugees that are moving, um, but not a lot of conversation about the religious dimensions uh, to this crisis, more about political and economic and all those things, all these tie together. It's an intersectional kind of thing that's happening. Um, but first, uh, tell us about your own background and your experience um, in Russia and the Ukraine. And why this gives you life to have have this these relationships and that connection. Right. Well, I've invested a lot of my life for almost 20 years now in Russia. In 2003, I began learning the Russian language and I was 48 years old at the time. So that was the beginning of the challenges. And then the next year, 2004 to five, I went with my wife and our three daughters to St. Petersburg, Russia. We spent a year there. Seven years later, we spent a year in Moscow. That time, just one of our daughters was along. And then 2018 to 19, a third sabbatical stay in Russia. That time, just with my wife. And we were in a small provincial town southwest of Moscow called Belgorod. And it turns out that Belgorod is very close to Ukraine, only about 20 miles from the Ukrainian border. Wow. And about two weeks ago, we began to get pictures of the Belgorod region as the tanks and the troops were beginning to mm. build up on the border. Mm. So that, even before the, the invasion was announced, we knew something was up. Mm. And so I suspect you still have, you have friends there um, and they're, uh, you're seeing these pictures on their social media feeds or, and that right, sort of thing. Right, we mm -hmm. have been uh, texting back and forth. One of my friends who lives in this Russian town, Belgorod, when the invasion broke out, his wife and daughter were in Kharkiv, Ukraine. Mm. That's the second largest city in Ukraine. If you've been following the news, Kharkiv has been under shelling for mm. the past week. His wife and daughter were huddling in a basement. Oh, no. Trembling for their lives. And finally, two days ago, a humanitarian corridor was opened up, and they were able to return to Russia, and the family is reunited. 
but that's how close it's been to me. Oh, wow. That's scary. That's scary. And this is not a war they chose, right? <laughs> um, by any means. No, no. And it's a war that took Russians by surprise more than anybody else because the Russian media for weeks had been saying, we're not going into Ukraine. We're not going to attack. It would be foolish to attack. This mm. is what the Russian people were being told. Wow. And then when the invasion took place, this shock, just right. unbelievable. Right, right. Um, we're going to want to jump into this. And everybody who's who's here, welcome. Please share with us. Uh, you're here in the comments section. And ask uh, your questions there. We'll try to get those into the conversation, but um, draw us a little bit of a picture of the religious landscape um, in the U Ukraine and maybe Russia too, um, who are, you know, what are the major faith groups? Um, and, and I know that's part of, of your connection there. And, and, and what are the connections to the Presbyterian Church USA? That's much of our listenership sure. uh, or to U.S. churches. Right, right. Well, both Russia and Ukraine are primarily Eastern Orthodox countries. Mm -hmm. So there are Protestants in each of those countries, but they're a small minority. We uh, do through the PCUSA have connections with those Protestant groups and also some of the Orthodox. And that's through our mission co-worker for Russia, Ukraine, and the former Soviet space. Her name is Ellen Smith. Mm. And Ellen is actually in the States right now, so she's not in danger. She's not directly affected, but she's, of course, following the events very closely. The uh, Orthodox churches, Eastern Orthodox, uh, in this part of the world go back for more than a millennium. Wow. They uh, trace their origin to the year 988. Right. When there was a Prince Vladimir, Prince of the... Eastern Slavic tribes. The Vladimir, Prince, like Vladimir, right? Right. They're similar Same. names. <laughs> a century later, we have another Prince Vladimir. <laughs> right. Uh, but in 988, he was called the Prince of Rus. Mm. That was the sort of the, the overall name for that part of the world. Of course, uh, boundaries, nations were not yet firmly set. But in 988, he chose to be baptized into the Eastern Orthodox faith by missionary priests from Byzantium. And in those days, you, uh, the, the prince, if uh, he became one religion, all his people, right, uh, by default, also in this case became Orthodox. So he uh, was baptized in what is now Crimea, and then he returned to Kiev and had his warriors and his families baptized en masse in the Dnieper River, which throws, flows through Kiev. Wow. Which is so, in current day Ukraine, correct? Yes, and that's mm -hmm. current day Ukraine. But it's also the roots of the Russian Orthodox Church, because over the centuries, Kiev declined in importance and Moscow rose in importance. And so the center of orthodoxy in that part of the world sort by of, the Middle Ages became Moscow instead of Kiev. Right, right. So it kind of shifted politically, right. religiously together at the center. That's, you know, that's right. Mm -hmm. And then Ukraine itself is uh, an area that has been 
a borders land. It's been tugged at and fought over. There are times Poland has been dominant or the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and other times that Russia has been dominant. Mm. And for the last uh, three centuries, it's been Russia that's been dominant in what is now Ukraine. And so for those last three centuries, there's been one Orthodox church in Russia and in Ukraine under the Patriarch of Moscow. I see. So there's a religious, there's not a there's not, I mean, there is obviously a national boundary there, but in terms of the, the church's boundary, it's not there. They're, they're, they're That's right. America. For three centuries, there was no religious boundary. And of course, uh, Ukraine itself was part of the Russian Empire and then part of the uh, Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. So only in 1991, 30 years ago, did Ukraine become independent. And that's when the religious landscape began to get more complicated because when Ukraine became independent, there were Orthodox churches that wanted to be independent of Moscow, wanted to be independent of the Russian Orthodox Church. Wow. Did they, so did they form their own Orthodox Church, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church or something like that? They they did. They broke off and... uh, Moscow declared them schismatics, but in 2019, the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew in Constantinople officially declared this schismatic group to be a legitimate autocephalous Orthodox church. So you have two dueling Orthodox churches today in Ukraine, one that's loyal to Moscow, and the other that has been loyal to Kiev, this new independent church that the ecumenical patriarch recognized. So there was a word in there I didn't recognize. Um, Autocephalus. Uh, <laughs> yes, you've got to tell us what that means. <laughs> That's uh, a Greek word for self-ruling. I see. Okay. Uh, there are self-ruling Orthodox churches. Oh, I there, there are a dozen of them by now, but uh, these are churches that have their own self-ruling capacity. They're not under any other patriarch or metropolitan. They're mm-hmm. able to conduct their own business as they wish. And often these autocephalous churches correspond to national boundaries. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, an American Orthodox Church, a Greek sure. Orthodox Church in Greece, and now in Ukraine, a new Ukrainian Orthodox Church, but in competition with the Russian Orthodox Church. Right. If uh, guess, and we thank you. I see Ellie and Rebecca. Thanks for your questions and comments. We're going to enter those in, but I have to say, I have to put in a plug right now for your 2017 book, uh, Holy Rus: The Rebirth of Orthodoxy, New Russia. Um, there's probably no one who knows more about what we're talking about now that you're just describing than John Burgess. So thank you for their work. Um, and uh, there are endorsements here from Ian Torrance and uh, also um, uh, diplomats and uh, Nigel Bigger from the University of Oxford. I mean, it's amazing the kind of um, this is really authoritative landmark kind of book. Um, and it, it, it is 
it's helpful. This is not a story that a lot that we that we learn in seminary or in our history classes so much. So thank you for providing um, this. And we're printing some links to this. Yale Press printed this in 2017. Um, I, I'm looking forward to reading my own copy. There's a question from one of your fellow uh, Pennsylvanians, Rebecca Melosi, who, who um, is a clergy person there, and she is asking about clergy connections across these boundaries and support for each other between maybe the Russian Orthodox Church and the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and others. Is there is there connection to support? Um, we're putting that question in the um, up on the on the screen now. Right. You know. Uh, since these two groups have been created and in a sense facing off against each other, one loyal to Moscow and the other loyal to Kiev, this uh, reflects a real split in Ukrainian society. There are parts of Ukraine that are closer to Russia, uh, both right. in language and in sentiment and in politics, and there are other parts of Ukraine that are closer to the West. And these two churches reflect that deep split in Ukrainian society. So uh, unfortunately, there, there's been a lot of hatred. There's been a lot of bad blood, even within the church, between these two groups. The Ukrainians see the, the Moscow church. They even call it that dismissively. They call it the Moscow church, <laughs> even though it's in Ukraine. And uh, the Russian Orthodox Church thinks much as President Putin does, that Ukrainians and Russians are really one people mm. and they shouldn't be divided. Mm. So what is happening right now is very interesting because the Moscow church, which is loyal to Moscow, but is in Ukraine, has really taken a strong position against the Russian incursion. Wow. And these bishops and priests are 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 taking their lives in their hands. Wow. They are the only people within the Russian Orthodox Church. Now they're in Ukraine, but they are the only ones who have said, President Putin, hostilities must cease. You're destroying the Ukrainian people, and we stand on the side of the Ukrainians. So what you're seeing is the possibility that these two groups that have been over and against each other will now actually come together and create one Ukrainian Orthodox Church instead of standing off over against each other. This will be a very interesting development. But, but then I think to myself, given everything that we can assume that President Putin will prevail in Ukraine, what will happen to these bishops and priests who have spoken out against him? Right. Wow. Um, tell us about Putin himself as a leader and his his own thinking about theology, his connection with um, the church uh, formally, and ha however ill-informed his the theological worldview might be. Um, how does how does that fit into what is happening here? You're starting right, to hint, hint right. Ahead. President Putin does call himself Orthodox. Mm -hmm. He does attend Orthodox worship services at Christmas and Easter. <laughs> and a priest, you know that, a priester, as we say, <laughs> and, you know, in the U.S. He, uh, he, he, he was baptized as an infant. That was often the case even in the Soviet Union that the 
the babushki, the grandmothers, managed to get their children, their grandchildren baptized. Um, and he's very close, or he likes to be uh, perceived as close to the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Patriarch Kirill. Mm-hmm. So if you look online, you will see lots of pictures of the two of them together. Wow. The, not the same relationship like with the queen and the archbishop. And, you know, it's not the same. There's not like he's not head of the church, right? No, he's, <laughs> no, he's not head of the church, but he definitely sees the church in Russia as being on his side. I see. Wow. And he he likes the blessing of the church for what he does. Right. And the uh, the patriarch has not spoken out against the invasion. Only some of his priests in Ukraine have spoken out against it. So, But he's not spoken for it either, I guess. Well, (laughs) uh, he's come pretty close to speaking for it. And this is the way he does it. He thinks that Russia is under assault from the West and Western values. And that the West is trying to impose its values on Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Ukraine, he says, is traditionally an Orthodox country. So it's right for us to rescue Ukraine from this Western assault. It's, it's such a twisted way of thinking. Does this go back to some uh, stresses in between the Orthodox Church and, let's say, the Roman Catholic Church or, or other Western religions or and, and thought is that is that the tension there for the patriarch? You think? Yeah, the 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 tension is around what Russians and President Putin himself call traditional religious values, mm. traditional values, and in shorthand, we would say these are conservative moral values, conservative on questions of sexuality, abortion. Uh, emphasizing patriotism, emphasizing uh, respect for authority. And the Russian Orthodox Church under Patriarch Kirill believes that the West is threatening these traditional Russian values, that the West would like to impose liberal democratic values on the Orthodox peoples of Ukraine and Russia. So they're is a kind of a culture war mm-hmm. going on in this war. Mm-hmm. And poor Ukraine tragically is stuck in the middle. Right. Um, Vladimir Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, um, I think it's been made known publicly he is, he is Jewish, maybe ethnically Jewish. I don't know how active he is in that faith tradition. I don't know how large that faith tradition is in, in the Ukraine and Russia. Um, but how does how does that his Jewishness how does that inform what is going on? Does it have any impact about right, what's happening right, right now? Well, I don't believe he's practicing. Okay, but he does have Jewish identity, and he, um, you know, he's he's taken part of what what what's interesting about Zelensky is that he doesn't have to take sides. In the same way as uh, some of of Ukraine's earlier presidents. So the former president, Poroshenko, was very much on the side of an independent Ukrainian church. Mm. 
and he wanted a Ukrainian church that would support Ukrainian nationalism. I see. Just like Patriarch Kirill in Russia wants a church that will support Russian nationalism. Uh, Zelensky doesn't have to fight that battle because he's not orthodox, but mm -hmm. he is a, a, a patriot. He uh, wants and believes in an independent Ukraine, a Ukraine that can get along with its big neighbor, Russia, but a Ukraine that will be able to determine its own way, its mm -hmm. own path. Wow. So how does this all now that this is great background and a landscape you've drawn? A, I know it's a very complex picture. There's a lot more texture and history. I mean, not I mean, going back to 988, but I'm, I'm yeah. sure lots of, of markers along the way. How does that inform um, the war now, the, the religious dimensions of, you know, how, how does that what does yeah. it make you think about in terms of what is happening right well, now on the ground? You know, uh, you're right, it is complicated. So from one perspective, this is not a religious war. Mm -hmm. Because practicing Christians, practicing Orthodox in Russia and Ukraine are a tiny percentage of the population. Right. On a typical Sunday in Moscow, only 1% of the citizens are in church. I see. But... Orthodoxy and religion are important as a cultural factor. Mm -hmm. as that, tradition, that traditionalism that, that gets people to sort of follow in the way yeah. of the nationalism. Right, like. mm -hmm. right. That's absolutely right. Uh, orthodoxy especially has always been very close to the, the state, the rulers, and it's been seen as a pillar for social stability. Mm. So now you have this standoff. You have the, the Russians and the Russian Orthodox Church who say Ukraine and Russia are one people. Don't let the West divide us. We are one people. We've been one people since 988. Mm -hmm. And it only became a problem after uh, 1991. I see. Don't take Ukraine away from us. We're one people. Mm -hmm. But then you have many people in Ukraine who say, even though we've been part of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, we have a distinctive language. Mm -hmm. We uh, have our distinctive heroes. We uh, have our own history. We've uh, never been simply absorbed into the rest of Russia. We want Russians to respect right. our distinctive national history that includes a distinctive form of orthodoxy mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier about the founding of the russian orthodox what is now we know as russian orthodox church in kiev um now in ukraine there are other um former russian areas will we are there similar stories and connections to these other former parts of the soviet union john Yes, it, there, there are, and there have been tensions, uh, though nothing that has risen to the level of armed conflict. Correct. Right. So the Russian Orthodox Church continues to have churches in the Baltic states, mm -hmm. which were once part of the Soviet Union. Right. The Russian Orthodox Church has churches in Kazakhstan mm -hmm. and other Central Asian republics that used to be part of the Soviet Union. 
Mm-hmm. But but it's Ukraine that has become the target because it's Ukraine that for the last 30 years has drifted further and further to the West. So are you, you I know you write about in the book uh, how much of the theology is in the liturgy yes. um, of, of the church. Um, and their calendar is a little bit different. We've just we're just at the beginning of Lent. I'm here in the Western Church. Um, where where are we liturgically um, in the Orthodox Church right now? And and how did what what kind of prayers do you think they're saying? What kind of prayers can we join them with? I know people want to know what are the things we can do here to help um, to pray yes. and to do Great put our question. prayers into action. Great question. So, um, for Western Christians, Lent began last week on Wednesday. Ash Wednesday for Orthodox Lent began last night. Wow. Lent began last night, and it's it begins with a beautiful service, Vesper service, that are called Forgiveness Vespers. Wow. Forgiveness Vespers. And what a powerful testimony that should be. <laughs> at a time of war, ironically, tragically, that a war is going on at the time that Orthodox begin their Lent by praying for forgiveness and asking for forgiveness from one another. Mm. And God, I guess, also. <laughs> and God, yes, yes, of course. So that would be my prayer and the prayer that we could join in because... Even in the West, we can begin to set this up as a conflict between liberal democracy in the United States and dictatorship under Putin and Russia. And we we divide the world into two parts, a good part and an evil part. That's not to justify in any way what Putin has done, but it is to say that as Christians reaching beyond boundaries, reaching beyond borders, reaching beyond the ideologies that separate us. Mm-hmm. Right. Welcome, everybody, back. I see John uh, Cleghorn here, and uh, who's a former student. And um, I also saw Letitia Campbell. I'm going to put this in the on the screen. It's so you can see the name there. Aristotle. I don't know if you know that name, John, but there apparently is a petition that is being yes. circulated. Yes. Um, are, is, is that legitimate? Is that something we can help out with, you think? Well, uh, now, I didn't look carefully at, at what you just posted, but there has been a petition within Russia okay. that Russian Orthodox priests are signing in opposition to the war. Okay, I think that's what this, I think that's exactly what this is. So we have it, have a link um, to this. So there are some voices speaking out within Russia, and Mm -hmm. this includes some Russian Orthodox clergy, even though Patriarch Kirill has been supportive of the war. Mm -hmm. I think uh, Robin Sakula is asking, uh, 1% of folks are in church on Sundays. That is correct. Um, In Moscow. It's a little bit higher in Kiev, but it's still not more than 10%. John Cleghorn is asking, trying to get a couple of questions here since we had the, the hiccup. Um, is it a stretch to draw parallels between conservative, not conservative split as it is here in the U.S.? There are uh, some parallels for sure. Uh, 
And, you know, even within the conservative evangelical, group, evangelical groups in the United States, there are differentiations. The, mm -hmm. uh, the difference is, at least so far, that, that uh, the United States is not a dictatorship. Now, I no. know some people fear that this could be coming, but it's not the case right now. And that's, of course, very different in Russia. In fact, mm -hmm. one of the tragedies of this conflict has been that President Putin has closed down much of what was left. There wasn't much, but he's closed down what was left of an independent press. And so mm -hmm. Russians today have even less mm -hmm. democracy, less freedom of speech than they had uh, before the war. You know, I heard from uh, a colleague of my wife's who's a, a historian and actually from Croatia and has been following closely that there was a Russian newspaper early on, maybe the day of the first attacks um, that printed also in Ukrainian that day. <laughs> I'm guessing that's not happening anymore. Are you hearing anything um, maybe that's from on the ground or from, I know Ellie Johns Kelly, an alum of Pittsburgh Seminary is asking about personal connections. Are you hearing things like that from uh, things on the ground. I know you mentioned earlier yeah. about friends um, close by. Um, so I, ha I have friends both in Ukraine and in Russia. Mm -hmm. And we email, we text. I also am, uh, have friends who have friends in Ukraine. And mm -hmm. so we are getting regular updates. But, you know, many Russians are they, they really do believe the Russian press. They really do believe the way that Putin is interpreting it. And this has been very painful to me personally, mm. because these are wonderful people. They are Christians. They are churchgoers. They have been so kind to me and my wife when we've been there. Right. And now to hear the, the, the poison, the uh, anger, the hatred that some of them have toward Ukraine, you know, how how do I respond? Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Um, I think, you know, we were talking early and friends here know that uh, we like you. My wife had a Fulbright, but in Hungary, Debertson, not not terribly far away. And there are some Hungarian reform folks in Ukraine. It's also a small number. But yeah, it's those those connections when there's a um, when they don't have access to kind of a free media. Um, it's it, it, it makes a big difference. That's, that's, it's sad, really, is what it is. And I'm sure it's it's um, but it sounds like you're staying in touch with them and keeping those relationships going, which is also possible. You know, right, because I just uh, feel that arguing with them is not going to get anywhere. And right. that right now it's more important to try to keep the connection because long term, I'm really committed to those relationships. I, I want them to be honest, but I want us to, to see our way through this difficult time and not break up the relationship just because I'm in the States and they're in Russia. We had a little bit of a hiccup earlier and I wanna make sure there's some question, one more question here at least. John Wall is asking, are there any formal or informal ties or support between evangelicals in the U.S. and the Orthodox Church in Russia or the Ukraine, and I, I, that's a small e. I'm, I'm thinking he's thinking more broadly yeah. about Protestants and um, etc. Yeah. So when communism fell, 
in the, the Soviet Union in the early 90s, there were many evangelical groups that sent missionaries to Russia and Ukraine. But by the late 90s, there were many more restrictions on evangelicals, especially in Russia. Mm -hmm. And evangelicals have had more opportunities in Ukraine. Okay. So there are many connections between U.S. evangelicals and Ukrainian evangelicals, and some within Russia, but more uh, between evangelicals in the U.S. and Ukraine. This uh, has been very important because even though Protestants are only about 2% of the population in Ukraine, they are very active, and they're known for their social work, for their social ministries and compassion, orphanages and feeding programs right. and schools. So this support has uh, been very important to them and actually has given them a good profile in a society that culturally is largely, largely orthodox, but where uh, there's been good working relationships between evangelicals and orthodox in Ukraine, in distinction from Russia, where there's much more suspicion between orthodox and evangelicals. That's helpful. I know we were talking earlier in preparation, um, and there are groups, um, and we'll post some on our page here, um, and, and others who know about opportunities. I know the Hungarian Reformed Church has a refugee ministry. It's um, somewhat like Presbyterian Disaster Assistance, and, and I know they're hosting, I've, I've seen the last, latest numbers, of over 100,000 refugees, and I heard today there's some 40 million people in the Ukraine. I mean, there's probably going to be a lot more refugees. Um, you right. mentioned it's... from your colleague um, in, with the World Mission Initiative there, Hunter Farrell, who's, who's, who's well acquainted with the World Church um, and this kind of ministry, the International Rescue Committee, uh, also, who are working with refugees um, in in the Ukraine, among other places. Um, yeah. Are there other things you're hearing about that we could tie into, John? Well, I think those are all good. And I know Presbyterian Disaster Assistance, PDA, has now oh, good. Uh, okay. set up a fund I, uh, where it's directing money. So there are those good opportunities. Uh, what I, I hope we won't forget is that I hope we won't forget the Russian people in the midst of all of this. Amen. Amen. You know, it's easy to uh, support the Ukrainians. Of course, they're the victims. They're the ones being attacked. But war brings incredible suffering and even suffering to those who are the aggressors. Right. You know, there are dead bodies uh, mm. going back to Russia right now. The, the ruble has lost 50% of its value in four right. days. So right. people are having their savings wiped out. There are Russians who oppose this war, but don't feel free to speak out. Right. And there are many Russians who are confused. They don't know how to find reliable information. They don't know really what's going on and how to evaluate it. So, yes, we our, our, our heart breaks for what's happening in Ukraine. Let's also not forget that war is doing terrible things to people within Russia. That's what a wonderful reminder. You must be like a systematic theologian or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> and reformed, I can tell. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, I haven't been 
I haven't been tempted to convert. I learned a lot from orthodoxy, but uh, I'm so appreciative of my own but, reformed heritage. But you also understand how to turn this turn this around and think it. Look at this from all sides, and all of these are children of God, and not everybody is certainly chosen this way. And right, I mean, this is this is not just a crisis that's momentary. This this will probably be for a generation or more, and. Uh, I know you'll be sticking with it and staying in touch. Please let us know how we can help. And I'm sorry um, that our time has gone so quickly. And I suspect there are other questions. Um, Friends, uh, reach out uh, to us. Reach out to John. You can find, we will put his bio and connection there at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Um, thank you for your witness, um, for your connections. One of the things I love about being Presbyterian is we do establish relationships. This is not a relationship you just established in the last two weeks, but it goes goes back decades. And and so grateful that you have those connections and can share so generously and wisely with us and bring complex problems um, into uh, into ways that all of us can understand. And um, just just so grateful for you. And a lot of folks are in the comments are shouting out the same things. Friends, um, John's book again, Holy Roost, um, please take a look. Um, there's an article, um, look this up, that just came out literally today uh, that John has authored in the Christian Century on is Russia's war on Ukraine about religion, a history of the Russian and Ukrainian orthodoxy. Suggest the answer is complicated. Uh, you've heard that here. You can read more about it on that article. Um, we'll put that in the chat as well um, now or later. Um, take a look um, at that. Thanks so much. And love for you to offer us a blessing. Um, I'm going to invite folks uh, on the 16th uh, of this month. We'll be having on uh, John Pavlovitz. He has a new Lenten devotion, uh, which seems appropriate, called Rise. Um, we need something to rise during this time of Lent. Um, he has a new book out. If God is love, don't be a jerk. Uh, maybe we should send one of those <laughs> um, to Moscow uh, to read. Um, uh, Finding a faith that makes us better humans. We look forward to having him. There's also a special episode uh, that will be coming out soon, just in my, um, just on the podcast, leading the uh, theologically um, with Barbara Brown Taylor on attentiveness from the farm where she is living. Hope you'll. Uh, sign up, subscribe to the podcast uh, wherever you get your podcast and and listen to that. That will be dropping in the next uh, week or so. Um, so hope you'll join us. Thanks again, John. Would you bless us as we go? Yes, let us pray. And, and at the beginning of this Lenten season, oh Lord, we pray for forgiveness. Mm. We pray that each of the parties to this terrible conflict, including us in the West and in the United States, will examine ourselves again and recommit ourselves to reaching out to those who think differently, even those who offend us, even those who seem to be our enemies. Thank you that through our Presbyterian connections, we can be one small part of that witness to justice and reconciliation. And may your peace Accompany us through these weeks until we come to the cross Mm. and the joy of Christ's resurrection. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen and amen. And uh, blessings to everyone this day. And we'll look forward to seeing you soon. Take good care. Bye-bye.